Okay, Hebrews chapter 13. Oh, I have a little, somebody brought this in, kind of a follow-up of our discussion last Sunday. So let me mention this first. This is a Beth Moore workbook, and it has a thing in here about judging. But what's interesting is she has all of these things, why why not judge? Don't don't judge for this reason, don't judge for this reason, don't judge, all that. And then she makes provision for church discipline, Matthew 18. But there's absolutely nothing in here about discerning or judging wolves and false teachers. Nothing. Absent. And that's precisely what's the problem is going on. And I have an article that we're going to be publishing. It's going to go out in the mail on Thursday on this topic. There's basically a Bible study that goes through the key categories in the New Testament about what we're not supposed to judge and what we are supposed to judge. And we talked about it a little bit last week here in this class. And after looking up all of the verses in the New Testament where the word crino, anacrino, diacrino increases, these are the words and, and cognates for judge, and then eliminate the ones where God judges because we know He judges, and then what was left with all the verses on judgment that pertain to us, what we should or shouldn't judge. I created categories, wrote a kind of a Bible study on it, and then I also put all those verses in at the end so you can look them up themselves. Basically, the simple version is this. We're supposed to judge what we can know. We're not supposed to judge what we can't know. If you just remember that simple rule of thumb, that's the, that's the simple answer to a complex situation. And so if you, if you think of the things we can't know, for example, one of the things that we're warned not to judge is uh, other people's uh, righteousness or piety. You know, I'm holier than thou type of thing. We're not supposed to do that. Why? Because we can't know it. How do I know I'm holier than somebody else? Well, like God can judge the heart. Maybe I'm the least holy person here. I don't know these things. I do know i got a log in my eye, right? <laughs> so, uh, so we can't know that. We're not supposed to judge other people's motives according to um, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Why? Because we can't know them. They're hidden. People can have bad motives and have a good exterior. Or they can um, you know, seem kind of nasty on the outside but really have good motives. We, there's things you can't know. But what we can know is what's biblical and what isn't biblical. And we can know the teaching that's been delivered to us as the authoritative words of Christ and His apostles. And we have to judge all the teaching that's presented to us under the guise of being the words of God, the authoritative words of God. If we fail to do that judgment, we fail, period. Because we shall certainly be devoured by the wolves. And so what's going on that I'm trying to refute is the false teachers are throwing up this thing, judge not, to create cover for them to continue to do their false teaching because they don't want anybody to question what they're saying. They're saying, you don't have a right to question what I say. No, we not only have a right, we have a responsibility. Okay? And so, so my sermon is going to deal with that from Matthew 7 today. And part of the reason for all of this, um, the article, the sermon, all this stuff, is that we're doing a radio show on it Saturday, and this is my way of getting prepared for the radio show. Uh, Jan Markell and Brian Flynn and I are going to talk about this topic uh, Saturday on KKMS. But let's get to... Um, on this matter of judging, by the way, the reason we, we, we open the Scriptures and study and study and study and challenge one another about what does this mean, how do we apply it, that's what, that's what judging is like. It's like once you understand the boundaries of what God has taught and what He hasn't taught, then you know where you're safe. All right? And if you stay inside those boundaries of the true teachings of Jesus that have been given through His apostles, we're, we're safe and we know that we're honoring God and we know that within those boundaries, the Word of God has this gracious effect of changing our lives. But false words can't change anybody's life other than for the worse. Okay, so last week we did Hebrews 13 and verse 3. This week we are in Hebrews 13 and verse 4. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. 
So now we're, uh, the last chapter of Hebrews has exhortation. And in this context, is telling us things that God wants us to do. Love the brethren, verse 1. Show hospitality to strangers, verse 2. Remember the prisoners, verse 3. And now talking about our relationships, talks about marriage. That marriage is uh, sacred. It's ordained by God. And what it means to have the marriage be held in honor and the bed undefiled is to be faithful to one's marriage vows and to live faithfully as one husband with one wife. And as you probably know, it's a man and a woman. Thank you. Did you get that? Yeah, people are getting a little confused on that nowadays. <laughs> All right, and um, this was ordained by God all the way back. And we'll look at some verses in Genesis where God ordains marriage. It was God's idea. The, the Bible, Old and New Testament, consider all forms of sexual immorality to be a defilement of the marriage vows and to be a defilement of what God considers to be sacred. Okay, so a person who is unfaithful to his or her spouse is not only um, causing harm to his or her own family, but bringing defilement to something that was sacred. So it's it's considered idolatry. It's considered profaning something holy. Okay? Take, as like taking the Lord's name in vain would be to profane the holy. So when it says undefiled here, the word as it's used in Hebrews has to do with, um, how would you say it, sacred, um, keeping something holy. It would be like if one of the priests in the Old Testament decided to disregard the law of Moses as far as how you are holy in order to go do your duties and just went strolling into the holy place and now I'm not going to do the blood of bulls and I don't want the labor of washing. I'm going to just barge in and, and come to God any way I want. That would be to defile what's holy and would invoke serious judgment from God. Now, I was taking that same sort of terminology out of, out of the Old Covenant and applying it to the institution of marriage as being sacred and holy in the sight of God. Now, just so we get this on tape, and we, you know, because this is going out over, all over the world, and also just so that we all know, and we totally understand, the marriage that is holy is not some specific marriage that's better than other marriages. It's marriage in general, okay? Because when Jesus said, "Whom God joined together, let no man put asunder," He didn't ask for any distinctions. He didn't say, "Now." Bring ten married couples and I'll tell you which ones God joined together. Right? He, he just said in general, so you're married, then God joined you together. And so that the holiness of the marriage vows and the holiness of the, of the institution of marriage isn't created by some special higher order spiritual experience. Alright? It's not created by people being better than other people. It's created by the act of God in joining a man and a woman together in holy matrimony. Let me read something from William Lane. The sequence of respect for the life of the body. Remember we were talking about since you yourselves are also in the body in verse 3, we're trying to get to context. And we said that he's talking here about the human body. Not just not the body of Christ. Since you are in the human body and subject to weakness and frailty, then people that are suffering, you should have compassion for them. Now on that topic of being in the body, respect for the life of the body is a corollary of the understanding of human sexuality as the gift of God. It is to be honored as an expression of our distinctiveness as persons. Sexual responsibility affirms the lordship of God the creator over the sphere of bodily life. Consequently, regard for marriage and for the physical intimacy integral to marriage is an essential aspect of the pursuit of holiness to which the community has been called by God. This is William Lane. Further quoting, Marital infidelity is inconsistent with the summons to fraternal love. 
Hebrews 13.1. Regard for marriage is an essential expression of the quality of love that binds the community together as brothers and sisters who share a common confession. As a community, they must respect marriage as the gift of God and support those who share their marriage relationship with empathy and affection. So part of our duties as Christians in the body of Christ is to pray for one another and help one another and respect marriage and help people's marriage uh, along by God's grace and to be there um, and supportive. Now, this was very important in the ancient world, in the early church, and there's a lot of uh, ethical admonition, admonition about morality found in the New Testament. And part, well, which is always going to be necessary, but what we need to realize is in the ancient Near East, not so much amongst the Jews, because they had a high moral standard, because they'd been given it by God through Torah, but amongst the pagans in, that they lived amongst, there was very little respect for marriage. And uh, immorality was rampant, and in many of these cultic religions, immorality was considered an act of worship. They had uh, cultic priests, priestesses and prostitutes in some of these cities in Asia Minor. Um, and so when the early church gathered in Acts 15, at the very beginning of the work of God amongst the Gentiles, they had to decide what of the law of Moses would be required of the Gentile converts. And so the question would be things like the food laws, Sabbath keeping, and so on. And they determined not that the laws of Moses weren't binding as far as the ceremonial part, but one of the things they instructed was that they were supposed to keep themselves free from fornication. Why? Well, because if they weren't instructed in that, they didn't come built in with that understanding. The Greek world did not even consider marital fidelity as some sort of a great, um, wonderful ethic that they should strive for because of the rampant perversity in the culture. So when Christianity spread from the Jews to the God-fearers, to the Samaritans, God-fearers, and ultimately Gentiles, they brought along this high regard for marriage and the fact that immorality had to be avoided. Okay. Did you have something? Well, I don't know how that uh, dedication to marriage is right now in the church today because, like, you look at the latest <coughs> Barna studies and polls and, and things like that, the the church is really no different than uh, the secular world. And, and, and that could be the church, the visible church, not, not the... Yeah, I, I've read some of that. I've read some of that um, material. That the, and, but I think there's two things going on. Okay, and one of them, and there probably is a real problem. But the other thing with the polling is that when they're asking these people if they're born-again Christians, well, half of them don't believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. Well, so I've, these people who are saying they're Christians, most many of them are not. Or How could you be a Christian and don't think there's anything as truth? All right, so then the poll, of course, they live like the world because they're probably not converted. But on the other hand, I think that doesn't say there isn't a real problem. Yes. I was going to say, you know, the same thing you said, that the poll is kind of skewed. But part of it, too, is some of these people were divorced or were in relationships outside of marriage and then came to the Lord or, or then submitted yeah, later. Right. So it's the way they ask the question. Yeah, that's true. And it's always been the case that God converts people from all different kind of conditions. Okay? And how we come to the Lord, we come to the Lord. And the rule is you come to the Lord and you're married, then you do what you can to stay that way by God's grace. All right. Uh, to whom you're ever, to whom you're married to. Now, on the other hand, Satan would certainly like to destroy the Lord's flock, wouldn't he? And look what happens when high visible, uh, Christian preachers and, and teachers don't follow this admonition. We just had that happen very visibly here in the Twin Cities a couple of years ago where uh, someone who was highly respected and actually had a good doctrine that he was teaching ended up uh, living in adultery. And what was worse, rather than repenting and trying to get things straight, straightened out, he divorced his wife and ran off with the lady that he was seeing. And Satan loves these sort of things because what's, what's it do other than bring disrespect to the gospel? Okay, 
So that's why this is very important. Now, also, I think we need to realize as uh, Christians that we need to pray for one another because this is a tough world we're living in. And it isn't, this isn't 1955 anymore. Not that there weren't sinners in 1955. Sinning has been around since the garden, right? But we used to live in a culture, in America at least, that had some kind of restraints. That the whole community would look down on certain things. Now we don't, and we're being given all kinds of liberties by the culture that God doesn't give us in the Bible. So we need, we need the Word of God. We need whatever restraining influences that the Lord has for us. We need the gospel to be proclaimed. We need the Word to be taught. We need the means of grace. We need to pray for one another. All these things God's given, we all need to say, rather than being holier than thou, well, I would never do that. That's what you hear people say just before they backslide. Let me unpack what I just said, okay? It's, there's a passage in the Bible about that. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. When a person starts boasting in their own ability to not fall, it's a precursor to falling because the, the thing that keeps us from falling is our trust in God who can keep us. And as soon as we take our trust off of God and begin to put our trust on our own supposed superiority over other people, we're losing the grace. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble, right? And if we think more, but by the grace of God, there go I, God does give grace to the humble. But we start thinking, well, all those wicked sinners, I would never do that. You know, there's a lot of things I think I would never do and I probably never will, but if I don't, do some wicked thing. It's because God's grace, not because of Bob. Can we say amen? amen. <laughs> Is that true for you too? <laughs> All right, so that, that's the sort of thing that keeps us. It's just knowing we need one another, knowing we need prayer, knowing we need uh, mitigating influences like the Word of God, the things that can keep us, and humbly coming and submitting to the means of grace and being there for one another is how God keeps a community a body of Christ from falling and members from falling. Now, some may, as long as we're still in the body, there's going to be people that fall into sin. And there's a provision for that in the Bible. There's Matthew 18 and there's, there's processes for restoration that we follow. But I'm, I think that part of the reason, if these polls have any accuracy, there's so many problems, is that the means of grace have been taken away from the flock. And I'm telling you that human wisdom and pop psychology can't keep people from sin. It doesn't have the power to do it. And so when you're not getting the means of grace, you're more vulnerable not to excuse anybody's sin. Yes? I was just going to say that Galatians 6, 1-5 pretty much just sums up that loud. Please read it for us. This is Galatians 6, 1-5. through 5. Uh, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself blessed, you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Okay, that's very good, absolutely. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 5, just what we were just talking about, that if somebody's fallen into sin, we're to help them, but re- reminding ourselves that we're just as vulnerable, right? That we need the Lord too, and we need Him to help us. So, so we have a strong uh, ethic here. It's taught in the Bible. Um, it says here, the marriage bed is undefiled. In other words, kept holy. Um, um, William Lane says the word undefiled has to do with, um, it's like violation of the purity code in the Old Testament. And I think I was seeing that a little bit ago. He's, here's what he says about it. Sexual immorality is actually a rejection of the presence and goodness of God who created the human family in its maleness and femaleness. is an expression of a selfishness blind to the emotional fragility 
that characterizes every person. The writer warns that those who place personal gratification above responsibility to God and to the community will encounter God himself as judge. Um, implicit in the future tense, will judge, krine, will judge. Uh, well, actually, that's to judge. Krine is an infinitive, but that's the word that's in the future tense. God will judge is an allusion to the final punishment that determines human destiny. The awesome prospect of final judgment throws into high relief and ultimate importance of respect for marriage and for sexual integrity. They, re- they represent aspects of the pursuit of holiness that are foundational to the worship of God. And this is true. And we've, many people have come to the Lord over the years that I've been in the ministry that have had lives that were just totally destroyed before they came to Jesus Christ. And they can all testify that this is the truth. And I've, I know many people who became Christian and said, would to God I hadn't messed up before. Because the consequences come following along sometimes. But the good news is that when you come to God through the gospel, he washes away all sin. And you are just as cleansed and just as holy as somebody that grew up in a church reading the Bible since they were three. In fact, if the person who grew up in a church reading the Bible since they were three, if they're self-righteous, they're less holy. Okay? Because holiness is not based on our pedigree or our previous life. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ who makes us holy. So, if some of you, as we read this, are possibly thinking, yeah, I, I know. I know, what it, I, know, I know what it says because my life was really messed up before I knew the Lord and it was such a bad thing and I still have hurts and regrets. A lot of, a lot of people feel that way. But the good news is, You've been cleansed. What does it say in First Corinthians 6? Such were some of you. But you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified, you've been made holy. Okay? And so what God expects here, this is addressed to the church. So whatever, whoever we are now, wherever we are now, now's the time to begin to live for God. And He will bring healing and forgiveness and help us rebuild our lives by His grace. So as fornicators and adulterers, God will judge uh, somewhat, not totally synonymous, but the idea of fornicator, pornoi, pornoi, where we get our word pornography, pornoi, sexual activity outside of marriage in the Greek, and adultery is being unfaithful to one's marriage vows. So those who live that way are facing God's ultimate judgment according to the Word of God. Any more? Dis- yes, uh, Paul. Well, I think something so important too in marriage is that it's a very picture of Christ and the church. It talks about that in Ephesians 5, you know, how. Yes. It's, it's really about the best. I mean, God's given us marriage is a very picture of that, and when you get to file, that picture really, so. That's a good point. If you couldn't hear that on the tape, when, uh, someone pointed out that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, according to Ephesians. And so. Uh, being unfaithful to marriage vows would be equivalent to being unfaithful to Christ and destroying that sacred union. It would be like being an idolater in that regard. Good, very good point. Thanks, Paul. Okay, let's go on to verse 5 here. Actually, I'm going to read verse 5 and 6. They're kind of coupled together so we get the basic idea. In, in sections of the New Testament toward the end of epistles, generally you get ethical guidance. You get the doctrinal foundation laid first and then teachings about exhortations and ethics and how we ought to live. And it gives us sort of the priority that God has. If you take out the doctrine and have only the ethics, you just got empty religion. You just got a man works religion. But if you have the doctrine without the exhortation, we may very much be living lives that aren't living up to what we profess to believe. So together, sound doctrine that has been taught to the, to the flock so that we're grounded in the gospel, we're grounded in the grace of God, and grounded in who God is, what He did, what He said, His character, His nature, what the church is about, what redemption is about, all these glorious doctrines, and well taught in encouragement, in exhortation, in Christian ethics, that that 
combination that we have in the New Testament is going to build a mature body of Christ. And will carry us on to whenever the Lord returns or we die to go be with Him. That's what we do. So, in that vein, let's go on to the next exhortation. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Now, the author of Hebrews is hitting the big issues that have always been the big issues for people as long as people have been on the earth. Immorality, love of money, selfishness and pride. It's very much like the categories in First John. It says all that is in the world, the, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is of the world. And the world and its lusts are passing away, but he who does the will of God will abide forever. Remember that? So we see these same things showing up again, that we'd be tempted to be filled with pride and we'll forget everybody else. We'd be tempted uh, to follow after lusts and defile marriage and defile our union with Christ. And we may be tempted to love money and uh, lust after that and leave aside our Christian ethics in order to try to become rich. And according to Timothy, when we do that, we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. Oh, oh! I forgot to do the cross-references on the last verse. Brian, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And Denise, Genesis 2, 24. Linda, 1 Corinthians 5, 13. Bob, 1 Corinthians 7 and 2. Karen, Galatians 5, 19. Stephen, Ephesians 5, 5. Oh, Colossians. What's your name again? Braden. Braden? Could you look up one? You want to do that? Colossians 3, 5, and 6. And Larry? I think it says Malachi 3, 5. Look that one up. If it's good, we'll use it. <laughs> if, they're all good. I should say if it's pertinent, we'll use it. <laughs> How are you doing on your verse here? Good. Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. Okay, so male and female created in the image of God. And then the related verse would be Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, so there's God ordaining marriage. Now, as we go along here, 1 Corinthians 5.13. But those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Yes, that was in 1 Corinthians 5 in the context of church discipline. They were, they, there was actually some sort of incest really wicked stuff going on in the Corinthian church, and they didn't feel like they needed to do anything about it. They weren't taking any church discipline. And so Paul admonished them in 1 Corinthians 5 that it's their job within the church to bring church discipline to members who stray and continually do so and actually claim a right to do so. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. All right. Same idea. All right. Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, and belong. Then more. So those three, three of the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality. So again, there's warnings throughout the New Testament about this Issue. It's a very uh, common theme. Ephesians 5 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So that's interesting where there are links immorality and covetousness, just like here where we have hold the marriage in honor and then let your character be free from the love of money. Because why? Well, Satan knows. Uh, did you know Satan is open-minded? 
He's got lots of ways you can, he can ruin your life if you, if you listen to him. Okay, so Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Uh, put death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, um, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay, put to death. Now again, it lists the immorality and covetousness uh, in the same list. Malachi 3, five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, there's a passage that God will judge sin. That's what it says in Malachi 3, verse 5. Okay, so having done that, now we're back on this verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money. According to the New Testament understanding, greed for wealth is idolatry. Notice some of those cross-references mention covetousness and idolatry. And I, What's idolatry? Having some other God that's more important than God. Okay? So, it says, God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So, the implication is, the reason you would love money is you don't believe God's going to take care of you. Because money stands for at least security. It see, it seems to make one feel secure. I wouldn't know, but I heard it that works that way. <laughs> but, at least, you know, I, I wouldn't know because I'm human and I, I know how I think. And I think, you know, if I had a lot of money in the bank, there'd be less things to worry about. Isn't that how we think? And, and, and Jesus said that he takes care of the birds in the air, so how much more would he take care of his own? Yeah. And the flowers in the field. And yeah. The he, so. He'll take care of us. But it makes us insecure to think about not having enough money. Yes. I, I, I'm in the investment business. I work with a lot of people that have a lot of money, and it seems like the more they have, the less secure they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more they feel they need. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, Bob just said that the more people have, the less secure they seem. They're worried about losing what they have. Yeah, I suppose if you never had any money, you're not going to worry about losing it. <laughs> That's like one time. There is a certain security to that. I remember when I was just out of Bible college and I was in a volunteer ministry without any salary. I had no house and no salary and no bank account. And I had an old used rusty Buick, right? And a lawyer showed up at the door serving papers on me that I was going to be sued for like $200,000. I'd been in a car accident and I got the thing and I go, when you first see that, you know, oh no. And then I thought, ah, they're suing me for (laughs) $200,000. Boy, they're going to be surprised. So not having anything gives you a certain sense of security. What are they going to take away? So I, after I thought about that lawsuit for, for a moment, I thought, boy, they, they really messed up when they're deciding who, what, who to sue. <laughs> if you got money, I suppose that's what makes some people insecure because you have it. That's true. They talk about deep pockets. The lawyers will try to, you know, sue. I mean, some poor guy takes a gun and goes out, steals a gun, goes out and kills somebody. And they're not going to sue him, but they may sue the guy that whose shop he stole it from. Or they may sue the manufacturer of the gun, but they're not going to sue the guy that actually did evil. Why? Because they want money. They don't want justice. If they wanted justice, they'd go after the guy that did the evil. All right? And so who, who has money? Well, let's sue them. So don't sue me when I'm out of Bible college. It won't work. <laughs> you will be very sad. So let your character be free from the love of money. So to love money is to not trust God. And this is a difficult thing that we all have to come to grips to, with. Is that it's to trust God no matter what. And we don't know the future. Like those businessmen in James. Or even what Paul talked about in Philippians. When he talked about he had the secret of being content. He said he's been 
abased, and he's abounded. But he's learned the secret of being content in any one of those conditions, having a lot or not having enough. So it's very, very necessary to come to hold to this and to have God help us. Being content is a, certainly part of the Ten Commandments. Remember, it says that thou shalt not covet. All right? Coveting is wanting what somebody else has. Somehow thinking that we should be better off if we had all the things they had. Here's uh, something else about the uh, grammatical links in here. In Hebrews 13.1, it has this word Philadelphia from the Greek, the love of the brethren. In Hebrews 13.2, it has philozenia, love for strangers. So we have love for brethren, Philadelphia, love for strangers, philozenia. And now we have philarguras, philarguras, which is love of money. So there's two things we should have, love of brethren, love of strangers, and one thing we shouldn't have, love of money. Okay, so there's, they sound similar, and there's a grammatical link. So free from the love of money. I have a cross-reference here. Uh, Nicole, could you look up Genesis 28.15? Yeah, just, I think, I think that that's, that I'll never leave you for forsake you may be uh, an allusion to Genesis 28.15. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay, that's God speaking to Jacob, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, God speaking to Jacob where he says, I'll, I won't desert you, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to be your God, when Jacob was on the run. So that was a covenant promise that was given to the patriarchs here reiterated in the New Testament Lonnie, could you look up Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8? 6 and 8. Okay, 6 and 8. Uh, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God he is the one who goes with you. Um, okay. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And, uh, let's see, verse 8, you said? Yes. In the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Alright, so do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord is with you. He won't leave you nor forsake you. Now that was in Deuteronomy is given to the wilderness wanderers. And they certainly had a lesson, didn't they? Because they're, the only way they survive is if God brought the manna, right? They're out in the wilderness. They don't have any jobs. They're totally dependent on the Lord. And so he promised that he wouldn't leave them nor forsake them. So therefore, we can have confidence. Um, so one of the things that we learn from this is the way to be free from the love of money is to be confident in the Lord. And to trust in the Lord. And to believe that He's going to take care of us. And that even if the worst things that we can imagine happened, God still said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord will be with you no matter what happens to you. No matter the, if you, if you have fears, just whatever the worst case scenario you might be afraid of, if you begin to think about this, God will not leave me. And the worst thing that can happen is I'll die and go be with him. And that's not so bad. And so he won't leave us while we're here either. Now, I was going to have some, again, marvelous um, William Lane commentary. He says, The pastoral concern with impurity and greed in Hebrews reflects the peril of defilement through sexual offense and idolatry which entails the desecration of that which is holy. The joining of injunctions to sexual purity and contentment at 13.4-5a through 5a constitutes a reminder to preserve the holiness that the members of the house church enjoy through the high priestly action of Christ on their behalf. That's, that's what I was saying earlier. That's very important. We have holiness not because we're poor 
We, we have holiness not because we're moral. We have holiness because of the blood of Jesus. Alright? Because there are a lot of poor people. For example, in the uh, monastic orders uh, that Luther was writing against. Because they didn't understand the finished work of Christ and somehow believed in works, they, they joined monastic orders, some, some of these people, and they took an oath of poverty and an oath of chastity. And they felt by pledging to not even be married, which isn't a biblical ideal, and to always be poor, they were going to somehow achieve holiness. But they did not, or could not, because by the works of the law, no one shall be justified. I don't care what. So the scripture is just, that's why the doctrine comes first. We have had all of these verses in Hebrews about the blood of Jesus and about how he cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, how we have a high priest seated at the right hand of majesty on high, how we have an anchor within the veil, all of this about that. And then at the end comes the admonition. So having holiness is why you abstain from immorality and greed. It's not abstaining from immorality and greed creates holiness. It cannot. It cannot. But it can be the result of a holiness that's been imputed by God through the righteousness of Christ. So I totally agree. Uh, William Lane's uh, commentary is just fabulous. I got an interesting email. Um, uh, Tim Challey's emailed me and said he's starting an, or he's resurrecting a site and he got an idea from MacArthur's pastor's conference. And the idea was, somebody said, well, uh, I, can't, I, I don't have a chance to go to seminary. I'm in the ministry. What can I do? And MacArthur's advice was, find out what books the men of God that you admire are reading and go read those books. You probably get a pretty good education. <laughs> so I, so um, this challenge... They send emails out to different to MacArthur and a Piper and everybody around. I don't know how I got on that list. I don't. I shouldn't be in this category. But anyhow, I got an email and he asked, "Would you write a paragraph about the ten books that are the best books you've ever read, so that we can put this on a website?" And so they're going to have all these different Christian teachers and leaders and what their ten books are. So one of mine is going to be William Lane's commentary on Hebrews. It's because it's just been a life changer. And some of you have been here since the beginning uh, that we started in Hebrews 1.1, like Dick. Well, he's been here a long time. <laughs> but I wouldn't you say, Dick, that just going through this and in allowing Lane to, to fill in the theological issues has been just a powerful thing. Yeah, I thought about including that one too. But my understanding of Hebrews has just blossomed since starting embarking on this. And this is probably the third time in my life I've done a study of Hebrews. Uh, I did one when I was in Bible college. and I, I think it's probably my third time through Hebrews. But it's just blossoming. Plus, what's interesting is now at this moment of church history, this is so important. Because this is how we fight the contemplative movement. This is how we fight these mysticism and, and, and what have you in the, the seeker movement because Hebrews is bringing us face to face with what Christianity is all about. About the words of God, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, uh, that have been spoken once for all by Christ to us and by what Christ's finished work, His atonement, His high priestly ministry at the right hand of God, and about what the Christian church is all about in, in the exhortations that we have to be an authentic Christian community in the Lord. And so what a timely book to go through the study. And I, frankly, I'm getting sad that we're coming to the end of Hebrews, but I know the next book will be just as good. Yes? One other thing. When you started this, you picked up on the doctrine first, exhortation second. Yes. Yeah, totally got reinforced just as we go through Hebrews that you start with doctrine. And uh, it's fatal, it's fatal to lay aside doctrine. 
in public teaching. And when, and when they say, well, people don't want to hear doctrine, so therefore we can't teach it, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. Because Paul said when they don't want to hear doctrine, that's when you teach more of it. So remember, the time will come, they won't endure sound doctrine, heaping unto themselves teachers, having itching ears. So what does he say? Therefore, preach the word. <laughs> teach doctrine. Why? Because we got to know not what people want, but what God's going to use to change your life. So Lane has just brought out the, brilliantly brought out some of these things. And some people might say, well, but can't you just read Hebrews? Yes. Absolutely. Just read Hebrews and understand what it says. But, if God has given people in the church that have access to all of this intertestamental rabbinic literature, background of the words, how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together, and they are also rock solid in their own theology and their understanding of the redemption, why not benefit from these great gifts? Why not have this information? Ignorance is not bliss. Okay, so I, I love to be able to access this material. Okay, so um, he says the love of money and the trust in God are mutually exclusive. That's what it says right here in the passage. The fight, frightening prospect of renewed suffering, says Lane, may have encouraged the members of the house church to seek to secure their future through the accumulation of material resources. It is at least probable that some Christians wish to amass wealth in order to protect themselves from persecution through money. The unselfish love to which the community is summoned in 13, 1 through 3 would be thwarted by the love of money. So not only is the love of money uh, uh, a bad thing for our own spiritual well-being, it's bad for the integrity of the church. Because if we think we have too much to lose, we might not be there for our brothers in their time of persecution. We might just run and secure our own selves rather than to be there for one another and for one another's well-being. So that was a real issue because they were living under persecution. Well, we got time for a few more verses. I'm going to, I'm getting out of my name memorization zone here. Tell me. Paul, I knew that. This is Paul. <laughs> Exodus twenty seventeen. In your name, I can't. Pr- okay, something like that. Isaiah forty one ten. In your name, Brian. Brian. Matthew six twenty five and Troy. Luke sixteen thirteen and fourteen. We'll see if we get enough time for those. Uh, Exodus twenty and verse seventeen. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Okay, that's the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet, and it lists just about anything that they might think somebody else had that they'd want. Alright? So, um, coveting would, would be prohibited under the Decalogue. You know what's interesting about that? That's the commandment that Paul mentioned in Romans 7 that he said slew him. Right? Um, in Romans 7, when Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, one of the discussion was about the prohibition of coveting that could be found in the Ten Commandments. Now, I think the reason for that is you probably could at least claim you're keeping the other ones. Okay, I don't have any graven images. Clean. I only have one God. Okay. I treat my parents right. Done that since my youth. Don't commit adultery. Innocent. Don't murder. Innocent. Don't steal. I'm good to go. Keep the Sabbath. That's me. Don't covet what anybody else has. Oops. And so Paul said... That's the one, the law that struck at the heart of his self-righteousness because that's one you can't claim you kept. All right? If you even wanted what somebody else had, you've already sinned. Well, then we need the gospel. Okay, Isaiah 41 in verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not frightened, for I am your God. 
I strengthen you and I help you. I uphold you with my victorious right hand. Very nice. Fear not because I'm with you. And I withhold you. A lot of people know that verse, right? Isaiah 41.10. It's very famous. Fear, fear not. So there's, God gives us a good reason to not fear. What's the reason? He's with us. Very good. The best way to get rid of fear that there is is to have God in your life. Matthew 6.25. Okay. Okay, Matthew six twenty five. In the meantime, Troy, why don't you do Luke sixteen, thirteen and fourteen? Luke sixteen, thirteen and fourteen. Yes. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and man. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So they, they didn't like Jesus' teaching because they loved money. Alright? So, Matthew 6.25. Okay. Uh, it's a because, so I'll read the sentence before. You are not able to serve God and wealth. Because of this, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. What you eat and what you drink, nor for your body, what you put on, it is, is not the soul more than food and the body than the clothing. Yes. All right. So there it says, don't be anxious for your life because God's going to take care of us and our soul is more important. The Bible also says, what is it profit of man if he gains the whole world? And loses his soul. Now it's hard to think that way unless God does something to open your heart to the scripture. But do you believe that that verse is literally true? Absolutely. And I believe that in eternity everybody is going to know that that verse is literally true. That it would be a bad deal to give up your soul for the whole world. But how do you know that's true now when the world looks so good and you can't see heaven or eternity? It's got to be God's Word. The only way you can know that to be true is by believing God's Word.